evening. Let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and listen more as a meditation, not so much because there's something to remember, but hopefully more because there may be something that resonates with what you already know to be true in yourself. Having the privilege, as those of us who are leading the retreat do, of meeting with you regularly and interviews and so forth, I've come to have, all of us have, come to have a, a very deep and abiding trust in this process of meditation. But more deeply than meditation, a, a trust in the process of the opening of the body and the heart and the mind in the depth of the work that we do, trusting as I see people come in with all different kinds of experiences, the capacity that we are born with to see clearly, to hold our experience with wisdom and compassion. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist text, so you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And sometimes I look at the teachers that I've taken as exemplars or people that I hold in that way, the Dalai Lama or Aung San Suu Kyi in house arrest in Burma or Václav Havel, whose first act as president in the Czech Republic was to invite the Dalai Lama to come and join him after Havel got out of prison or Mahagosananda. And I look and see how do they live in circumstances of tremendous difficulty. And I see in them a, a, a flame of compassion and steadiness and trust no matter what. And it's beautiful. It says what's possible for us as humans. It doesn't say we won't have difficulties, but it says what's possible for you, O nobly born, is to work with the circumstances of life in a wise and compassionate way. And sometimes it's big things, and people will come into interviews with great changes in their lives and sickness and loss and great difficulties. And sometimes it's, you know, the smaller things. There was a fellow who came on retreat last year, a year before, who was in difficult state. It was his first retreat. And he was already stressed out because his business wasn't doing so well and his marriage was a bit shaky and his father had emphysema and was pretty sick. And the minute he sat down to try to meditate and put his attention on his breath, his attention, would he said it would bounce off like, like water on a hot skillet. <laughs> the, the level of stress and pain in his body and tension that he carried was so much that as soon as he tried to attend to it, it would bounce off. And he began to think that meditation really wasn't for him, especially after a couple of days of sitting and suffering, um, as you have. And then it got worse because there was a woman sitting near him who had a bad cough that got worse during the retreat. And so he'd be sitting trying to be mindful and having all his difficulty and she'd go, <coughs> really loud cough. 
And he came in and he said, I'm just, I got to leave. I can't do this. It's too, it's, she's there and my body and my, my family and my business and, you know. And the teacher that he worked with said, um, that's okay. Why don't you just close your eyes first and before you make a decision, tell me what's going on in your body. What are you experiencing? What's going on in your heart? And he closed his eyes and there was this tremendous sadness that came immediately and this great tension in his body. And the teacher said, well, do you think that going, running, leaving the retreat, running away will help you with this stress and sadness and all that you carry? Maybe there's a way to use it. So he decided to stay for a little bit longer. And the task that was given to him was, all right, when this person near you coughs, let that be part of the meditation. Pay attention, see what happens. So the woman near him would cough, and his whole body would clench up in this wave of anger and outrage and so forth. And he began to relax a little bit with it. Okay, this comes in big wave, and then it would pass away. And he started to notice that he could actually tolerate it and still be present somewhat. And then he went down to lunch, and he got in the lunch line, And when he looked up in the lunch line, he saw that she was like the person right in front of him. And even though she wasn't coughing, just seeing him, his whole body tensed up. (laughs) Seeing her, rather, that person. You know, and he noticed that. That's interesting. She's not even coughing. And then he came back up after lunch, and he was um, checking the bulletin board, you know, because there's nothing else to read. So people kind of read it over and over and over again, right? (laughs) Desperate. You know, and there he saw a note to this woman. And the minute he saw her name, his body clenched up. (laughs) And he began to realize that his body had become a mirror and that his attention was actually teaching him what he did when things were difficult and the habits. And as he paid more attention, he realized that that same kind of contraction happened with the difficulties in his family and in his business. And by the end of the retreat, through paying attention to the thing that he wanted to run away from, he began to trust the awareness itself and realize that he could be present, not only tolerate, but find some ground of stillness and compassion and presence for himself. And even at the end, he said, you know, she really has been a good teacher for me. He wasn't really like ready to go up and thank her or anything, but there was some... So we take our seat in this human form, halfway between heaven and earth like the Buddha, and experience the stream of sensory experiences and memories and so forth, just as the Buddha did in our bodily experience. And as the Buddhists in in the great story sat under the Bodhi tree, and Wes sort of talked about it in his talk last night, um, sitting there then he was attacked by the armies of Mara. Most of you know this story because it's such a famous myth. And Mara came in the form of temptations and aggression and doubt and all the things that Wes talked about last night. And the Buddha had to find some way to sit in the midst of all these energies and not be shaken. In fact, the paintings show the spears and arrows of the armies of Mara and the the flaming arrows and so forth coming in. And in the, in the depictions, there's a, a line from the Buddha's heart to his fingertips. He raises up his hand and touches each of the acts of aggression with compassion. And they turn into flower petals and fall 
to his feet. And I've come in the same way to really trust that we have this same capacity as Buddhas as we are to sit with our humanity, with all of it. And, I mean, in some places, you, you, all, you invite it. Okay, let's see. Uh, this from an Indian teacher. He says, go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come. And they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So people come on retreat, and okay, here I am. And then Mara appears. Mara is really amazing. You know, you can be in Woodacre or in, you know, Palo Alto or Berkeley or Los Angeles. The minute you sit and close your eyes, Mara says, ah, here I am, right, ready for you, you know, ready for you to understand both the energies of life that, that are here and how to find freedom with them. And when Mara appears, I tend to get curious. People will come in and they'll say, oh, this terrible thing happened or this great thing happened. I say, oh, tell me about it. I'm interested. Um, There was someone I worked with for a period of time who had a great deal of trauma, and trauma comes up in the retreats. And um, we spent time over a series of retreats and time together just holding the trauma and the early pain and the suffering that she carried with compassion, letting things little by little unlayer. And then at one point, <clears throat> she said, you know, if I, I have so much anger at what happened, so much rage. <clears throat> if I let it out, it would just destroy the whole world. And that's what I'm sitting with. That's it. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, um, how big is it? Because it felt like we'd done enough work that she now had the capacity to sit with it a bit more. She said, it's huge. I said, like what? Close your eyes, get an image for it. Is it a, you know, is it like a tornado or a hurricane or a tsunami? And she said, no, it's nuclear, (laughs) to use a phrase, right? Um, I said, all right, well, let's, let's just see what happens. She said, no, no, if I let this out, the world, it's just going to destroy everything, and everything will be dead, and I can't. I said, well, let's just try it in imagination for a bit. Let's see what this is like. So close your eyes, sit, okay, and feel what's in your body and what's in the mind, heart, all this tense energy and rage and anger. All right, sense how big it is, like a nuclear explosion. How big? dissolve the whole world in flames. Is that as big as it is? Well, no, bigger. The solar system, the galaxy, everything. And so she sat with this enormous burning fire of this rage that she carried for a long time. And then finally she said, you know, it's done. Everything's dead, died. So much rage. It's just charred the whole universe. I said, okay, stay with that for a while. She said, but it's dead. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing. I said, well, let's just see. You know, let some time pass. How long? Five minutes? No, no, A hundred years. A thousand years. Imagine. A million years, however long it takes. Now this is like five minutes going on. Ten million years. Nothing's happening. Okay, a hundred million years, however long it takes. All of a sudden, 200, 300 million years, I see her head shake a little bit. I say, what was that? She said, nothing. <laughs> 
Okay, nothing, that's fine. Just let things be dead, that's absolutely fine. Okay. Another hundred million years. Everything charred, black, you know, burnt, dead. 200 million years, head shakes again. I said, you see something? She said, mm, yeah. I said, what is it? Are we willing to look? Okay, maybe. Far end of the galaxy, way over there, what do you see? There's this little glint of green light. Look closer. And all of a sudden she said, oh, there's this beautiful blue-green planet and the, the plants, the, 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 the life is starting to come back on it. And it was really uh, an important moment for her because somehow she had let herself face the thing that most scared her, that was the most difficult, and allowed the space to say, all right, let me see what happens with this. And then it showed like the grass pushing up through the cracks in the sidewalk, that there is something about life that wants to renew itself so deeply in you when it's given permission. So we sit as the Buddha did, and as he sat on the night of enlightenment, all the different realms of experience, you know, and the way it's talked about archetypally is the, you know, he saw the visions of all these various incarnations and births that he had. Um, but it's really true for you too. I mean, how many incarnations have you had since this retreat started? You sit and you have a joyful sitting and you have a pouty sitting and you have a restless sitting and one that you feel like you're going to die, dying, 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 dying. I hate this, hating, hating. I got through that pretty good, pride, pride, you know, and you just kind of notice all that, right? Um, You've been born so many times in the course of this retreat. And I know from my own experience, you know, sometimes trauma comes up and it really asks to be held with compassion and understanding. There's a release of deep history that we rework. Sometimes it's joyful, and this great sense of joy and bliss opens. And when it does, you want to dwell in it and embody it. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment. And when you feel calm or peace or spaciousness or joy arise, let it open. See how big to say, okay, now show me. You know, let it fill your body, fill the room, fill the sky until you can dwell in it. It starts to allow the cells of your body to relax in this deep and beautiful trust. And then sometimes archetypal things come. You know, you get these angelic kind of experiences and experiences of light and luminosity. Or sometimes the experiences of death will come. And I can remember sitting at a certain point in retreat and seeing the images of death as if I had been born and died thousands of times and all these different images would appear and disappear. Went to see my teacher, he just smiled and said, yeah, you know, stay present for that. Birth and death. It's so mysterious. And we get to stop the busyness of our life and sit and face this amazing human incarnation, this amazing human condition. Now, one of the things that's really important for us here, and that happened for the Buddha in his own realization, the Night of Enlightenment, is that the Buddha saw 
all these possible experiences, all the realms of experience of joy and suffering and of desire and fear um, and love and connectedness, all the different possible incarnations, if you will, said, okay, I've been all of these. I contain all of these. I'm connected with all of these. And then the next thing he did was to begin to question, who is it to whom all this happens? This really amazing question that we also have to ask. I mean, how did you get in the here? Here you have this strange incarnation, you know, with a little fur in a couple of places, not very much as <laughs> in my case, but some that's left, you know, and the hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly, as I said before, right? And grind them up with the bones and push them through the tube out the other end. And, you know, this, this strange incarnation that you find yourself in somehow. Um, that's so mysterious. And the Buddha began to look not at just the, the play of experiences, but at the mystery of incarnation itself, of coming to be. Now this is true. In one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, in July 2007, the Chinese government banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the new law, which goes into effect in July, strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate, and it is an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. This is really true. They're nervous about what, you know, where the next Dalai Lama is going to be, so they would kind of want to... And we do that. Okay, we're trying to control this thing. But what the Buddha did is he stepped back and he said, what is this? How did you get in here? And one of the, one of the things that's really um, a telling moment is when you look in the mirror. Did I talk about this the other night? You look in the mirror and you notice that you're older, right? Everybody notices that. But you also have this strange and very compelling experience that you don't necessarily feel older. And that's because it's only your body that's gotten older. And the body exists in time. The food body, it has a certain cycle of life like any other plant or animal does. But the one who knows, the witnessing of it, the consciousness itself says, hmm, looking older now, you know. Um, And there's a deep sense, even in that simple moment, that this body is not the sum total of who we are. It just isn't. And we know this quite directly and intuitively. And then the Buddha said, um, in one of his conversations with his monks, he said, if you think the body is who you are, you will you know, have a great deal of suffering. He said, but if you think the mind is who you are, those thoughts, it will be worse. <laughs> So a couple from snowy Minnesota decided to take a winter vacation back in the simple Florida resort where they had stayed for a honeymoon 25 years before. Because of his wife's delayed work schedule, the husband went first, and then when he got there, he received a message that she would meet him soon. So he sent her this email in reply, but because he typed one letter wrong in the email address, it went by mistake to an old woman in Oklahoma whose minister husband had just died the day before. Here's what she read. 
Dearest, well, the journey's over and I finally arrived. I was surprised to find they have email here now. Maybe I read this to you. They tell me you'll be coming soon. It will be good to be together again. Love as always. P.S. Be prepared. It's quite hot down here. So, your mind does the same thing. It tells so many stories and thoughts, and it's basically unreliable. I hope you've noticed that. So many opinions and views about things. So there's the body, there's the mind. To whom do these thoughts arise? To whom does this experience of one moment after another, the different incarnations of your sitting happen? And what the Buddha did was to turn his attention as if you were sitting in the movies and seeing all these images on the screen appear, romance and comedy and tragedy and war films and gangster movies and, you know, um, the Nature Channel and all the kinds of movies that we can see. And we get very much caught in the movie and then at some moment it's as if we pause for a second, look around a little bit and turn back toward the projector and begin to notice that there's the source of light and the images that fill the screen. And all of a sudden, instead of being lost in the movie, we begin to say, oh, this is how a movie appears. And in the same way, it's possible to turn your attention with this question back to say, to whom has all this retreat experience happened? Who is hearing these words right now? And when you look, you don't really find somebody. It's interesting. I mean, look for yourself. It's very hard to find a sense of, this is who I am. What you begin to sense is that there is a knowing, an awareness, consciousness, if you will, that is ever-present, clear, open, receiving experience, And that the whole identity, all our dramas and so forth, is different than this space of awareness. Little experiment. As I'm speaking with you and you're listening, try not to be aware. If you need to, you can even close your eyes. But try not to hear, not to sense your body, not to think, not to feel anything. Try to stop being aware. See if you can have some experience of no awareness. Anybody do that? Raise your hand. You can't do it, can you? So you can trust this awareness. You can rest in the space of awareness itself, which isn't the small sense of self, which isn't all the identities we make, but is the ever-present space of awareness that knows experience. And it is the ability to step out of or to have the experience, but to know it from the place of awareness that brings us freedom. The poet Hafiz who says, uh, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. (laughs) And we have the small sense of self that's sometimes called the body of fear, this limited way we go through the world. And then in a moment, as you sit or walk, there can be a sense of, oh, Here we are. This was a pleasant sitting. This was a painful sitting. This was 
an experience of loss. This was an experience of joy. And there's a capacity to be present like the Buddha with great compassion and great understanding and say, yes, this too is part of our human life. I met a a man who became a very close friend of mine who died this last year and named uh, Salam um, at a hospice. Um, I was doing some teachings for the hospices of the Bay Area and he was there at that time. And I asked him what he was doing um, working at this hospice as as a volunteer. And he said, to make his story short, he'd been a journalist in... Uh, Jerusalem back in the late 60s and early 70s, writing about a free Palestinian state at a time when it wasn't politically uh, acceptable. And so he was periodically jailed. And one time when he was jailed, there was this really mean guard who didn't want to be there and everyone, you know, had trouble with, um, who beat him so badly that he said, I died. At least that's what it said on the police report. Um, But actually he said, There I was lying on the floor being beaten, but my consciousness left my body and it was kind of floating on the ceiling. You've all heard these stories, people in accidents or even in meditation, you can have an out-of-the-body experience, not so uncommon. And he said, and I was looking and thinking, what's all the fuss about? You know, um, here was this body and that one and all of that, but I was really peaceful. He said, and then he turned to me and said, and then something really interesting happened. I said, oh, He said, then the sense of being located here observing, it's as if a bubble popped and I could no longer locate myself. And I was the green paint on the prison walls, you know, and the bars of the cell. And I was the boot kicking this body and the body that was down there with blood coming out of the mouth. And I was the bleat of the goat that you could hear outside the window. And he said, I was everything. I knew that. And this tremendous joy filled me, he said, because I realized that I could never die. I was life itself. And he said, I woke up a couple days later in the bottom of a cell in a battered body and gradually got better. He said, but I couldn't work for the Palestinians anymore. It didn't make any sense to to be on any side. He said, the only thing I could do when I got out, I married a Jewish woman and I had Jewish Palestinian children. He said, that's the closest thing that I could give to an answer from what I understood. So I said, well, how does that connect with hospice work? He said, well, I sit with people who are dying now. I just want to tell them that it's perfectly safe, basically. Then they don't have to worry about it. So we have when we come in retreat, this small sense of self, this identity that we're in, and it's fine and it functions with the personality that Wes talked about last night and so forth. But at the same time, there comes a trust of the space of awareness itself and the heart of compassion. Because when you see this, when you remember who you really are, then fear starts to drop away, or even if it comes, There's this deep compassion for all the people who don't remember. 
the Dalai Lama's vows when he wakes up in the morning. He takes these vows from Shanti Deva. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. May I be a boat, a river, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those to cross over, a lamp for those who long for light, a bed for those who need rest, medicine for the sick, and food for the hungry. May I be the wishing jewel in the vase of plenty and the tree of miracles, so that for every single being that lives, may I offer myself through boundless reaches of space and time until we all awaken together. That's quite a vow to take in the morning. You can't take it from the small sense of self. Okay, I'm going to go around and help everybody. and It doesn't work that way. The vow that he takes comes from the remembering, the knowing who he is, which is us, which is all of us. And so there comes this deep expression of freedom when we return to the place of trust, of awareness and compassion that says, yes, here we are. We are the Buddha, witnessing the birth and death of all there is. And when we do, we trust then our understanding. We see what the Buddha saw, the the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering in life and in the world. Joseph Campbell says, the first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is. And those who think they know how the universe should have been created had they done it without pain or sorrow or death or time are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, you will have to teach how to live in it as it is, with the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of the way life is itself. So there comes a trust that we can bear the sufferings of the world along with its beauty, its, its unspeakable beauty and its vast suffering. When I went to visit the monastery of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, the first time to talk to him about becoming a monk. He said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I said, that's a kind of funny greeting, you know. He said, well, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the kind you run away from, which follows you everywhere. And then the kind that you turn and face, within which you can find freedom. And it's woven in. Birth and death, pleasure and pain, gain and loss fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Anybody not have this? Sweet and sour, day and night, joy and sorrow. And so to trust that we have the capacity to bear witness to the sufferings of the world, our loneliness, our sense of separation, the longing. You don't have to sit for very long to see it. It's just here in all of its forms. And the insecurity of it. You know, we do all these things to try and make things secure. But as Helen Keller says, security is mostly a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. 
So we sit and walk and see the play of birth and death. And with it, we also see the inevitability of suffering, that it's part of it, along with the inevitability of beauty and renewal and the, you know, the life force that wants to push itself back up through the cracks of the sidewalk. And we come to trust this more and more. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, he says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our sorrows well. So you come a kind of trust that you can bear this life with its joys and sorrows. It's awakening. And you come, the second noble truth, a trust that you can also understand the causes of suffering. And the causes of suffering are greed and hatred and delusion and clinging. And basically underneath them are the, is the cause of is fear itself. You know, that we think of ourselves as somehow separate from the rest of the world. And then out of that grows fear and tribalism and racism and war and difference and greed and needing to protect ourselves. And, you know, based on that, then we make whole societies um, frightened of one another. The causes of suffering from the place of wisdom we see. More greed, more suffering. More hatred, more suffering. More ignorance and delusion more suffering. The more clinging there is, the more suffering there will be. And we each face our own. You know, there was a woman who came on a retreat um, who was in the throes of a really painful divorce and it seemed like she had been really mistreated and through the divorce she lost almost everything, didn't end up with much and it was really painful. And she was so bitter and so angry and um, they had kids, I think they were like six and eight years old. And um, She sat for a while and was just bitter, angry, hurt, grieving, all the things that one would naturally feel. And one day toward the end of the retreat she came in to talk to me and she said, you know, I don't want to leave a legacy of bitterness and hatred for my children. Even though I've been wronged, and it seemed like that was true, she said, it's not the legacy I am willing to leave and bequeath to my children. And so she really let go and went back to that very difficult circumstances, wisely, not you know, protecting herself, but not holding on in the way that she had when she came into the retreat. The kind of forgiveness that Philip taught this afternoon. So we trust that we can bear witness to this whole amazing human incarnation. We trust that we can understand the causes of suffering. And then the third noble truth, we also trust that we can release them and let go that there is freedom, that there's an end to suffering. 
And it comes in so many ways and so many forms. Martin Luther King, who says, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We, we will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. And this is the freedom of the heart that's possible for each one of us in all the things that are given to us. Suzuki Roshi said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha. We can be present and in the midst of it, we can be free. And that freedom is not clinging to our views and our opinions and the, the, the things we hold on to. Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you'll be a little free. If you let go a lot, you'll be a lot free. If you let go completely, you'll be truly free. And it was interesting um, to watch him. One day, um, there was a, a, an American who'd become a, a Buddhist nun um, in his Western monastery, and she was very devoted and quite charismatic. And um, after about five years of being there, she became the head nun of the Westerners. And then she left um, after five years or so and disappeared, and no one knew what happened to her. And she came back about a year later, and she had converted and become a event, born again evangelical Christian. And she was visiting the monastery and trying to talk everybody into Jesus. <laughs> You know, which was annoying to some of these people. But it got worse because she kept staying and she was really pressing it and the villagers who were supporting the monastery and everybody, they, they, everybody got really upset. Here's this person we admired and was with us on our path, right? And now she's saying Jesus is the right way. You know, and they got so upset about it. And what should we do? And finally they went over to see Ajahn Chah and said, you know, she's come back. And of course he knew her very well. And because she was charismatic. And, but now she's full of that same energy, but she's saying that Jesus is the way. And, you know, what do we do with her? And Ajahn Chah listened to all this, and he just sat and he looked and he said, maybe she's right. <laughs> and just that moment kind of diffused everything. You know, the more you cling, the more you suffer. And the more that you sit and walk and practice, the more you discover that freedom is possible for you. In big ways, in little ways. There was a, a woman who came on retreat um, and we had our first group interview and she was very, very shy, um, painfully shy, she said. She couldn't speak in groups. But I asked her to try to speak anyway or maybe close her eyes and say a few words. She said, if I speak in group, I always feel like people are watching me and I don't want anybody's eyes on me. And you could feel the trauma in that, really. I said, well, how long has this been so? She said, oh, you know, goes all the way back to my early childhood. I had her close her eyes and just tell me a little what was going on. And I said, so can you remember back to any moment when you were a child or sometime in your life where you felt free, where you weren't afraid of what she described as all this judgment and all this, you know, everybody telling her she wasn't right and all the stuff that happened to her. 
And she couldn't. I said, can you find any place in your body that feels safe, just as a refuge? No. I said, well, let an image come of some moment in your life where you felt there was some sense of freedom. A little smile came on her face. She held up her hand. She said, crayons. I said, what? She said, oh, I'm holding, I'm five years old. I've got this box of crayons. I said, great. You could draw, you know, draw a picture with it. She said, no, 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 I can't draw with it because then they would judge me and criticize me, but I can hold them. That's all I could do. I can hold them. I said, okay, that's fine. You know, and uh, hold them for a time and just feel that. How does that feel? It felt pretty good to hold them. I said, now, if no one were looking, what would you do? And she said, well, I'd take my crayons and I'd go out in the woods and I would dance like a fairy princess. And so when she... When the group was over, I went out and I got a box of crayons and I gave them to her, you know. And the next day she came in with this drawing that she had done. She said, I went out in the woods and I danced with my crayons and I did this drawing. And it's the first drawing I've done, you know, since I was a tiny girl. She was 64 years old, the first time. And there was so much joy in the freedom that came to her to face the eyes and the jo- all that internalized judgment and all of that, and then to begin to realize that it was possible to be free, to dance like a fairy princess. And this freedom is yours. It is all of ours. It is, as the Buddha says, your birthright, your, it is your true nature. He says, live in joy even among those who are disturbed. Live in joy and well-being even among those who are sick. Live in joy and happiness, the true freedom of the way. And one of my teachers talked about learning moment-to-moment nirvana. Nirvana, people think about, oh, it's in the Himalayas, you know, for some old monk in a cave or something like that. Um, But as Buddha Dasa put it, he said, anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand it? But the Buddha taught us that nirvana is the coolness of letting go, the delight of presence and experience when there's no grasping or resistance. If we grasp all the time, if we did, living things would either die or become insane. But instead we survive because there are natural periods of wholeness and ease and coolness. In fact, they last longer than the fires of our fear and grasping. It is this that sustains us. We have periods of rest, making us refreshed, alive and well. This is your practice, to feel thankful for your everyday nirvana. So to trust that we do know freedom. We all know it, each in our own way. Jarvis Masters, who's on death row in San Quentin, and I've been involved with the prison project there for some time now. He took bodhisattva vows um, with a Tibetan teacher, and he's been writing about his experience. And Anyway, one day Jarvis was out in the yard, and um, it's such a strange thing to be in, in 
prison in San Quentin because you're in this yard with guard towers, with men with rifles and concertina wire and all that around. And then you look out across the bay and there's sailboats in Mount Tam and this kind of wild juxtaposition. And you know you can't go out. But anyway, it, was, it had rained a bit and there was puddles in the yard and a seagull had landed there and was splashing around one of the puddles. Jarvis was out there and a young man next to him picked up a big rock and there we are, was about to throw it at the seagull the way young men sometimes do with stuff. And without thinking about it, Jarvis put out his hand and stopped him. And the guy got really angry. You know, hey, who do you think you are, man? I mean, who you think you run this place? And everybody could feel the tension and the anger and all that. And you don't do that in prison, you know. And like, was there going to be a fight? What was going to happen? But Jarvis had taken these bodhisattva vows. So he didn't know what to do, he said. So he turned, turned to this guy and he said, that bird got my wings. And the guy looked at him like he was a little crazy, you know. I mean, that's always a good move to say something that's completely unexpected <laughs> and no one has any idea what it means. And for, for two or three weeks after that, people would come up to Jarvis and say, what do you mean, Jarvis, that bird got my wings? You know, what do you mean by that? What is that, you know? And yet you know what it means. You know exactly what it means. And everybody in the yard knew what it meant. That we know what freedom is like within our own hearts. We know what compassion is like. And it's not far away. It is our birthright. We trust that freedom is possible. We inhabit the moments of freedom that come. And then you go and say, oh, I'm not free and I'm all caught up. And you say, that's nice. That's a nice story. Thank you for your opinion. That's just the judging mind. Thank you for that. And here we are. You know, you take the next step and you are free. And then there's the path to freedom, the middle path. And really trusting the path itself, which is the path of presence, of openness to this mystery. Trusting your own compassion in this world, your own capacity to be present. To love life and also to open to its changes, its mystery. This from Mary Oliver. She says, for years and years I struggled just to love my life. It's a pretty good line, isn't it? For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life. Too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And here's that great kind of mystery of paradox, that we have to treasure it and love it completely and fully. And then when the time comes to let it go, which is moment to moment, day by day, also to let it go. The Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the heart, I would not teach you to do so. But because it is possible for you, for each of us, thus there are the teachings of the Dharma. And then, this from Alan Wallace, he says, imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so you fall and your groceries are strewn on the ground and as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice and you're ready to shout, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? 
But just before you can shout, you catch your breath and you see that person actually is blind. And there he is sprawled in the same groceries and tomato juice and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathy, concern. Can I help you up? Are you okay? The way you would treat a blind person. Our human situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of suffering, misery, disharmony in the world is blindness, is ignorance, then we can open the door of compassion. And so it said when the Buddha realized freedom, he looked out over the world and saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy and in many cases terribly frightened and confused, doing the very things that would create suffering. And tears rolled down his cheeks. They're called the tears of the way. And in some stories, when they touched the earth, they sprung up as Tara, as one of the bodhisattvas of compassion. He looked out with the eyes of compassion and he saw so many ways that people make suffering individually and collectively. And he also saw that there is a a way out, a freedom. And so much compassion arose in him that he got up from his seat under the tree and he began to walk on the dusty road for 45 years, offering the teachings of freedom and compassion to whoever he met. And this is really what our practice is, like breathing in, and breathing out. One way we quiet the mind, open the heart, find a freedom within ourselves and all the things that have been given to us in this life, the the difficult ones and the beautiful ones. And after breathing in and centering, calming, finding a sense of freedom and compassion, what else is there to do? You get up and you enter the dusty road and you offer your understanding to all the rest of us, because it's just us. And so as the Buddha wandered, he taught people to remember their nobility, their dignity, their capacity for freedom. And we don't like to remember it sometimes, you know. It's a a strange thing. But um, Robert uh, Johnson puts it this way. See if I can find this. Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. He's a Jungian analyst. He says, it's more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you're a bum. And so here's the Buddha meeting people, you know, in every kind of circumstance and saying, you have the same capacity for freedom and compassion, nobility and dignity as any other being on this earth. Remember who you really are. The Sufis put it this way. They say, overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the 
sorrows of the world in her heart, you are endowed with a certain measure of that cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. And I see it. I have this great trust in you and in the human heart when we take the time to pay attention, to awaken this great heart of compassion, to break the spell of separateness, the sense of illusion, the small sense of self, to see one another with the eyes of compassion. And we help each other. Suzuki Roshi talked about how we hand it to one another. It's like pass from one warm hand to another, this sense of that freedom is possible, that love is possible, the deep sense of connection. And I don't think it's ever lost. You know, even though you may at times clearly see people who are far distant from it, the seeds that we plant um, in the end will will bear fruit. A few years ago, there was a special on television um, about the siege of St. Petersburg or Leningrad during the Second World War, I guess it was 60 years ago. Um, And during three long years, if I recall correctly, um, Leningrad was besieged by the German army and several hundred thousand people died. There was so little food. Um, And one of the people interviewed for this television show about what had happened had been a young girl, eight or nine years old at that time. And she told a story about how in the second year of the siege, you would go out and get your ration of food, just a little bit of bread. She said, and one day she went to pick up bread for herself and her mother, got this bread, and as she went out of the shop, it was winter, she fell and the bread fell out of her hand into this mud puddle and got filled with mud. And she started to weep, this little girl. And she said, and then someone walking out of the shop with their piece of bread walked over to her and tore it in half and said, here, take this. She brought it back to her mother. And then this old woman, who's now very old and kind of fragile, went back, the camera kind of went back with her to the you know, far cupboard in her kitchen and she opened the cupboard and took out this little box that she had and opened it and unwrapped uh, a napkin, a cloth, piece of cloth, and inside was a little piece of bread that she'd saved from that piece that was given to her. She said, because it wasn't just the bread that was given to me, but it was the hope. It was the spirit that someone would give of that little that they had and that's what got me through those, those long years and the years afterward. I feel like what we give to one another, just through the generosity of, of your silence, the practice that we share together here, the compassion that you can feel growing in the room, forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness, is a wonderful, amazing gift. Um, 
as is this beautiful silence. I believe in the unity of all things, says Gandhi, and therefore I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. There are things that we learn in this simple practice of presence, of sitting and walking, that I believe teach us how to die well and how to live well. And it's um, a blessing to share them. So let's sit for a moment. 